Today's episode of Help Me Teach the Bible was recorded in 2016. You can find episodes on every book of the Bible, along with topical conversations on Bible teaching, at tgc.org slash podcasts. Isaiah is told that he's to go and speak, and the very speaking will deafen their ears and blind their eyes and harden their hearts. That is not the kind of encouraging word you want when you're being told to go and teach the Bible to people, but that's what Isaiah was given as his commission. I'm Nancy Guthrie, and welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible, the audio series in which we, via the wonders of technology, pull up a chair in the studies of the best Bible teachers of our day to soak in some of their wisdom and insight into a particular book of the Bible. And we do that because we're people who want to better understand the Bible. But then it's more than that. We want to truly grasp the Bible In fact, we want to own more and more of the Bible so that we are equipped to give it back out in a world that is in such need of hearing and knowing God's word. And on this episode, I'm sitting in the very bookshelf-laden office of Liam Gallagher at 10th Pres Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So Liam, thank you for opening up your office to me and everyone who's going to listen to this podcast. Today. Oh, you're welcome. <clears throat> it's good to have you here. And uh, I'm surrounded by all these people that make me feel very small. Do they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was this office <clears throat> the office of some of your predecessors? Because you have, you stepped into some big predecessor shoes yeah, here. Yeah, people keep telling me that, which is <laughs> very not un- helpful. Un- it's unnerving, really. Yeah. Yes. So this was Phil Riken's office. This was Jim Boyce's office, latterly, um, because they didn't have this building. Uh, although this was, at one time, the building, which is at the back of the church, used to be Donald Gray Barnhouse's home. Really? Yeah. And then he sold it to lawyers, and then eventually the church bought it from lawyers, and uh, we've got it back. <clears throat> wow. It's beautiful. Thank you for allowing me, in fact, all of us into into it. And you came here to 10th Prez in 2011. That's right. From London. From London, where you were at Duke Street Church. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But you're not really from London. No, I I have to be very clear that I'm not from London. I'm not English. I'm Scottish. (laughs) Uh, Scotland is a local call away from heaven. England is a, another ball game altogether. Okay. They, say, they say that Scotland is a small country with a large peninsula to the south. Okay. And the southern peninsula is called England. Okay. Yeah. And what do you call this place where we are now? What? Philadelphia? Or the States. What the do you States. call it? It's the promised land. Of oh, course. okay. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Well, I am glad you have come to the promised land. Um, you have written a number of books. I saw that you have a book coming out just now on Elijah published by the good book company. And I, I wanted to bring it up because, you know, actually when I have published books recently, I have sent you a copy of my recently published book. I have not received a copy of this Elijah book. I just wanted to mention that. Well, I just think in in contrast to your amazing books, which are amazing, (laughs) my little offering is insignificant. (laughs) 
not insignificant. I have a lot to learn. I'm working about in my Asia. humility, Nancy. Okay, yeah. well, <laughs> I, I hope to walk away from here with a copy. I'm just saying. All right. And I first discovered uh, your ministry uh, back a number of years ago, uh, I think via the Gospel Coalition website that had some of your sermons on it. I remember first listening through a sermon series on Psalms, which really opened up the Psalms to me, and then went from there to the Duke Street Church website, Mm -hmm. where in fact... Still, a lot of your sermons on many books of the Bible are available there if people want to download and listen. Really? They're still on, are they? They are. They haven't got rid of me yet. That's good. Well, it's obvious we are in downtown Philadelphia with probably the garbage truck or whoever out there. But um, we'll just dive into talking about the book that Mm. we uh, are going to talk about today. Uh, What a significant book. Um, And I'm going to call it Isaiah. Is that okay. what you want to call it? Isaiah will be fine. Isaiah in England, Isaiah in Scotland, Ireland, and America. So, Well, this book, Isaiah, um, I noticed that in your preaching through the book of Isaiah, which you're in the middle of here at 10th Pres in Philadelphia, I think this last week you preached Isaiah 40. That's right. We've had two Sundays in Isaiah okay. 40. Yeah. Okay. So that's a real... The people are heaving a sigh of relief that we're there. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. I think the first, I mean, we can talk about this later, but the first 39 chapters can be tough going. I think there's a particular way you need to deal with those if you're ever teaching through it. But uh, people were longing to get to chapter 40 because it sounded as if it was going to be positive from there on. <laughs> yes. Well, I suppose you're, you're talking about one of our first challenges if we're preparing mm-hmm. to teach the book of Isaiah, yeah. is that, first of all, most people, if they know the book of Isaiah at all, they've maybe heard sermons on three or four key passages at Christmas. Maybe mm-hmm. they've, mm-hmm. what, heard Isaiah 9 and 11. Yeah. Um, they've probably heard one on Isaiah 6, Isaac's, Isaiah's yeah. experience of seeing yeah. the Lord. Uh, probably Isaiah 40, mm-hmm. a very inspirational kind of mm-hmm. text. And then, of course, Isaiah 53 50. at yeah. Easter. Yeah. And pretty much that might be all we know, really, about Isaiah. Which is... Which is true, and which is sad, really, because Isaiah is probably the most quoted book from the Old Testament, apart from the Psalms, in the New Testament. And whole chunks of the New Testament, take John's Gospel, for example, so much in John's Gospel would be indecipherable without the book of Isaiah to help you through it, really. And uh, our understanding of who Jesus is and so on is in many ways shaped by Isaiah's understanding. Most of us, when we're getting ready to teach a book of the Bible, and if we're getting ready to teach a book like Isaiah, one big challenge we have is probably a large number of the people we're teaching don't have a sense of Old Testament history Mm -hmm. in which Isaiah is written. So if we're going to teach Isaiah, what are the very basics about the time, the political, historical, geographical situation in which it was written and, and Isaiah's purpose. What, what do we have to make sure as a groundwork for our people we're teaching that they understand about that? I think probably two historical names and two historical groups. So the names are Ahaz and Hezekiah. The historical section of Isaiah is 1 to 39. It begins and ends. Those two men bracket that section. And the two groups are the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Uh, in terms of uh, Isaiah's lifetime, the Babylonians are a little footnote in 
prehistory, history to come. You know, they're not really significant, but they do enter the stage at the end of chapter 39, at the time of Hezekiah. Um, but Assyria really dominates the background of most of Isaiah 1 to 39. Uh, begins, for example, at the time of Ahaz. Uh, Ahaz is afraid of an amalgamation of Syria and Israel, that is northern Israel. And Ahaz is Ahaz the king, the of, king, Judah. king, He's the king of, of Judah. So of the southern He's kingdom. He's the southern kingdom. Okay, go ahead. So Ahaz, the king of Jerusalem and Judah, is afraid of uh, a nexus of power blocks, Syria and uh, Israel, northern Israel, have combined together, are becoming an irritant to little Judah to the south. Ahaz tries to get the Assyrians, who are not a big power at this point, they're not really strong at this point, but they're there, and he tries to form an alliance with them to ward off Syria, Israel, to the, to the north of them. So that's the beginning part. By the end of it, Assyria is the dominant thing. It, is, it has taken over and eliminated northern Israel, has defeated Syria, has already entered Judah and is causing wasteland, just turning into a wasteland, and is headed towards Jerusalem. And that's what's getting Hezekiah all uptight. As we approach teaching the book of Isaiah, how do we best move to making it personal and real and making application or even having the courage to teach it and believe there is something personal, real application from the book of Isaiah? Okay, looking from the New Testament into Isaiah, which is what we've got, always got to do, I think. We've got to read the Old Testament through the eyes of the New Testament. So the Bible is one coherent book. And as we do that, as we look back to the people among whom Isaiah lives and to whom he's speaking, we have to remind ourselves who they are. They are God's chosen people. They are covenant people. There are people among whom there are some who are genuine believers and many of whom are professing believers but without genuine faith. Isaiah is addressing all of those people. Isaiah talks about the remnant, the remnant of believers. Uh, he very often is addressing believers, encouraging them in their faith, to grow in their faith, giving them reasons for hope, uh, particularly talking about the coming Messiah and so on. He's, he's talking to believers there. Um, but he doesn't, doesn't just preach to believers. He preaches to the nation, and the equivalent to the nation is the church. So whenever he's talking to Israel or Judah, particularly in Jerusalem, he is talking to the church of his day. The church of his day was a nation state, but it was still a church of God in which God was known and worshipped and so on. So it seems to me that as you preach, as you teach through the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, you hear him addressing the church and the world the nations. Whenever he's talking to the nations, we have to understand that the New Testament equivalent to the nations is the world. That is the world outside of the covenant people. So you hear him, you hear him doing the two things, and you will, you'll find great parallels between Isaiah's preaching to these two groups in the early chapters of Romans. In fact, in many ways, I think Paul has taken Isaiah as a kind of format for his own treatment of 
the church and the nations, especially in the first two chapters, three chapters of, of Romans. <clears throat> I mean, those first five chapters of, of Isaiah, for example, are the introduction to the whole book. And in those chapters, Isaiah is laying out the case that God has against his people, against the church and against the nations. And whether he's talking to his own people in the church or whether he's talking to the nations round about, God's case against them is their iniquity. He's talking to his own people, he says, they're a sinful people, laden, loaded with iniquity. Um, and he makes the same charge to the nations round about. In fact, the tragedy is, at some points in those early chapters, there is hardly any difference between the church and the world, between the nation of Israel and the nations around. In fact, he uses the same language to both. And you think, at what points in our day would the Holy Spirit, if he was coming directly and talking to us, talk to his church the same way he talks to the world? And the reality is, sadly, not only is that true of the church as an institution today, but very often it's true of me and my own life too, that there's very little difference between my attitudes, my way of life, the, my, my moral choices, the way I think, than there is the way of the world. Um, so I think that's a helpful thing to have in mind as you approach certainly the early chapters, that this is God's case against Israel. So the first five chapters, is you would describe them as God's case against Israel. Yeah, they're foundational to the rest of the book. All right. Give us a brief sense then of the flow of the rest of the book, of the in general sections. Yeah. So those first those first chapters identify <clears throat> the fundamental controversy that God has with his own people. Woven into it, you find glimmers of hope. God, when he's talking to his own people, it's never the end of the story. There are always overtures of mercy, there's there's a call for them to come and reason with them. And that's kind of the nature promise. of these oracles, isn't <clears throat> yeah, it? Which is, that's right. maybe that's part of what makes Isaiah challenging to teach. We, yeah. we don't talk generally in oracles. No, that's right. I, maybe you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. <laughs> but uh, no, we don't. And uh, therefore, it's hard to, it's good to remind ourselves that this is a different form of speech than we normally have. Right. And so he moves from these um, pronouncing judgment. Mm-hmm. To, it might be helpful back to, and forth. Yeah, it might be helpful to think of them as sermons because they okay. were preached originally as sermons. I mean, as near as near to sermons as we can get, and and so while he's while he's demolishing the people, I mean, first chapter, for example, he leaves. The, I mean, they're completely demolished by his language. I mean, he just tears them to pieces. Then he throws in at the beginning of chapter two that this isn't the end of this story, but there'll come a day when the very when the very mountain that they have uh, that, that he's condemned will be raised up above all the mountains that Judah and Jerusalem are, the end is not going to be f- final for them. In fact, Judah and Jerusalem are going to be key for the salvation of the world. <clears throat> now we know that's true. Jesus comes to the Samaritan women and says, "Salvation is of the Jews." The New Testament teaches us to expect that that mountain of the house of the Lord, which is the Temple Mountain, will be fulfilled because from in Jerusalem. Among the Jews, the final temple arrives in the person of the Lord Jesus himself. And, and his being raised up, ultimately on the cross, but in, then into glory, becomes the very magnet for the nations to come 
We come back to Jerusalem and and Judah, just as Isaiah said we would. We come back to the mountain of the house of the Lord, which is the temple. We come back by coming to Jesus. There's the New Testament's insight into what Isaiah was saying there. So those are all thrown out um, in the first section. And that section is then divided from the the next by the vision uh, that Isaiah has of the Lord high and lifted up. And that his vision, I think, there is his def- defining statement about who the God is who we've just been listening to in the first five chapters and who we will listen to for the rest of the book, that he is the Holy One of Israel. That, that's, one of, that's one of Isaiah's signatures. You see that phrase? He has a number. That phrase, the glory of God, is another signature point that he uses. The word iniquity, which... He uses against Israel, he uses against the nations, he uses of the sin-bearing servant later on, and the gospel promise in chapter 40, verse 1, that our iniquity has been pardoned. So Isaiah is told that he's to go and speak, and the very speaking will deafen their ears and blind their eyes and harden their hearts. That is not the kind of encouraging word you want when you're being told to go and teach the Bible to people, but that's what Isaiah was given as his commission. Um, But in the middle of all that, there's a glimmer of hope. There's a promise that there will be one that will come, perhaps a seed who will come from, from the house of David, and the holy seed is the stump, or the, whatever that means, it's kind of thrown out there, you know, it's these teasers. And you're thinking, what, where's this going? What's this? And, and that's, in a sense, the way you've got to teach it. You've got to, you, you have to teach it in terms of, here's God throwing out a teaser. It's not the end of the story. You know, it's really bad, it's really bleak, but it's not the end. And interestingly, Jesus in John 12 it also says that about these words, Isaiah said these things when he saw my glory. So Isaiah saw in the temple a manifestation of Jesus. Flowing from chapter 6, you are introduced to, to, I think, the fundamental complaint that God has with Israel. We sometimes think the fundamental complaint was idolatry. Actually, I think the fundamental complaint that God has with Israel is that they don't believe him. Ahaz, who is the king of Jerusalem and Judah, is afraid that Syria is in a league with Ephraim, which is northern Israel. And his heart sinks, and like the trees shaken in the forest is the expression that's used. And uh, Isaiah is told to go out and meet him. He goes out and he finds him, checking the water supply. In other words, he's getting ready for a siege, and he wants to make sure that everything's in order. And Isaiah comes to him and says, uh, be careful, be quiet, don't fear, don't let your heart be faint. Uh, basically, he's saying to them, believe, you know, don't, you know, those, those two powers that you're worried about are just two s- smoldering stumps of firebrands. That's all they are. They're nothing. You know perfectly well, if you read your Bible, that God says, stand back. And behold, God will work for you. He will fight for you. That's what he, Just like at the Red Sea. Yeah. Stand he, and he, see the salvation of this the was, Lord. This was God's promise to Israel. You will never have to lift up a sword and fight again. I will fight for you if you believe me. 
And they proved that at Jericho. Just march around, shout praise to the Lord, and the walls fall down. Wherever they took things into their own hands, there was bloody massacre, there was mess, there was horrific casualties and so on. But if they trusted God, and, and so what Isaiah is saying to this man is, trust in the Lord. And Ahaz doesn't believe. He doesn't believe in God, actually. So when Isaiah, when Isaiah says to him, um, in verse 10, 11, you, I'll, I'll do a deal with you, Look, I'll give you a sign. You know, if you, you know, I don't do this for very many people, and sign faith is not a good faith. But, but nonetheless, I'll give you a sign. You just ask; I'll do anything, anything you ask me to do. And, and he goes all spiritual and says, "Oh, I wouldn't want to test the Lord and this, you know, and and you know that would be dreadful, you know." And, and basically, he doesn't believe God. And it's at that point that that Isaiah does two things: he gives him a sign, which is a judgment sign. Something's going to happen; you'll never see it. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. It'll be called Emmanuel. That's God's judgment on you. You will never see that sign fulfilled. He gives them another sign later on, which is Isaiah's own son who's going to be born. He gives him a different name that when this boy gets to a certain age, Assyria and Ephraim will be totaled. They'll be destroyed. In this section also, we see a repeated image uh, you referred to it earlier at the end of chapter six. The holy seed is its stump, mm-hmm. right? And then we're going to hear uh, about a a branch. I think as you look at Ahaz, who is an absolute disaster of a man, you're looking at a descendant of David. And the prevailing theme, of course, of much of the Old Testament is that it's from the seed of David that the Messiah will come. And you look at a man like Ahaz and you think, mm, he's, he's not he can't really, be the one. he's not definitely not the one, you know. And, and really part of, the, part of the book is in saying not, not only is Israel and Judah full of iniquity and so on, but the very kingship itself is damaged by, by sin. Uh, so that even the king of Judah reigning in Jerusalem doesn't really believe God, doesn't really believe God at all. And, and that's a kickoff for, for a whole uh, mini-section within the book in which he talks about the sign of Emmanuel in chapter 7. He then goes on in chapter 9 to talk about uh, the emergence of this king who is coming, a king who actually is worthy. He, he, you know, he's a, he is an earthly child. He is a human child. He will be born. He will be a son given to us. And then Isaiah tells us that there are these divine titles that this child will have. And that leaves us really, without our New Testaments, we'd read that and we'd think, how can it be a human child and divine titles and a kingdom that will last forever and ever and ever and ever and amen and will be characterized by everything but what Israel and Judah are characterized by now it's going to be characterized by justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. This is a brand new thing. This is a new creation that he's talking about um, here. And, and, and interestingly, if I can just kind of caveat, put this caveat, this is for free, Nancy, just thrown in here. <laughs> little caveat. When you get to the New Testament and in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, there is a mystery. In fact, the word is often used in the New Testament. 
to describe the way in which Old Testament promises are fulfilled in reality in a two-stage way. Um, so Jesus comes in obscurity, one day he'll come in glory, that kind of And we are raised from the dead spiritually, and one day we'll be raised from the dead physically. So there's a kind of two-stage to, to these things. And here, I think in Isaiah 9, you have the description of this one who is coming, whose kingdom will, will be like this, and it's all in terms of spiritual change. Uh, <coughs> he'll establish his kingdom with justice and righteousness and so on. Then in Isaiah part 2, where he's doesn't, he does not root 40 to 66 in any historical time period, there are no immediate allusions. It is all about God's glorious future. So when we get to chapter 11, and he says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Uh, A beautiful picture then of the coming of the righteous branch. That's another way we hear Jesus described by the prophets, is it not? Yeah. So the the Emmanuel of chapter 7 is built on in chapter 9 as an earthly king who has divine qualities and will bring about righteousness, who is nonetheless descended from chapter 11, the stump of Jesse. He's part, you know, he is the, the seed of David. So it's almost as if this Davidic um, rule, this Davidic dynasty mm. is going to be mowed down, yep. and we are going to think that it's over. Yep. Even though there have been these promises of a kingdom that will never end, it's going to appear that the Davidic dynasty is over. And certainly that's what it appeared to be when they were carted off into exile. Mm -hmm. And yet here is Isaiah and he can see beyond their exile to Babylon. And he says, okay, all of Israel's like a forest that's gotten mown down. And yet there's going to be this shoot from the stump of Jesse. And he speaks of this shoot in very personal terms. Yeah, and there, there, there's the, the qualities that are characteristic of the person himself who's coming, this, this, the stump, um, in terms of the spirit of the Lord on him, um, uh, his delighting in the fear of the Lord. The kind of, it's an elaboration of what's been in chapter seven, uh, sorry, in chapter nine, elaboration of what kind of kingdom it is. You know, this is a really righteous kingdom, and that ultimately. He will judge the wicked with the rod of his mouth. And after that happens, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the lion will lie down with the young goat. There's a kind of reconciliation now in nature and between nature and God. It seems when we get to chapter 13, there's a bit of a shift. I don't know if you would call this a separate section. Depends, I suppose, on how you're going to break it down. But... um, Isaiah moves from talking just to the people of God mm-hmm. about their sin and, and about their salvation, their hope mm-hmm. in this one who's going to come. And it's as if he looks up from Judah and Jerusalem and he sees the world around them and begins to speak. I don't know if it's to them or about them, 
Um, how would you characterize this section? Yeah, I think Isaiah is very conscious that, it, that Israel is set among the nations. In the same way that Jesus says that the church is the light of the world, the salt of the earth. Uh, Isaiah sees Israel as the light to the nations, and it's said among the nations, and therefore he as a spokesman for God has authority from God to speak to the nations because the nations belong to God. The nations have been exposed to the witness of Israel. Not a very good witness, <laughs> but nonetheless sufficient witness to condemn them. It gives us hope, them. doesn't it? It does give us hope, actually. We're not yeah. such great witnesses That's, all the time exactly. either. Exactly. <laughs> the church has made a mess of things. In fact, to be honest, if you look at the history of the church, you see so many parallels with Israel. It's scary. Um, but, but you know, nonetheless, there is even, even the, ch the church at its worst, Israel at its worst, there is enough light there to condemn. And so he talks to these people, you should have known better. You know, you should, have, you should have taken note of what you saw, what you heard coming out of Israel. He, he challenges them. And he's preaching to them, of course. He's inviting them. He's inviting them to, to repent in many ways because that, that beginning to talk to Babylon in chapter 13 is preceded by the promise that God will raise up a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah. Now, there's three groups there. There's the nations, there's northern Israel, and there's Judah, and they're all of them, from the four corners of the earth, be, being brought to this figure who's been introduced to us. He's, he's, the, he's the signal for all the world, as well as for Israel, which, is, will, which eventually will disappear off the face of the earth, so the northern Israel and, and Judah. And, and it's against that background of a promised salvation for the nations as well as Israel and Judah that he addresses the nations, warning them of what's to come. When we read sections like this in the Old Testament, I always think to myself, why was it so difficult for... Um, the people of God, the Israelites in the time of Jesus to believe that actually salvation was for more than just the Jews because it, it's clear here in Isaiah and in other books, um, you know, Jonah, mm -hmm. uh, so many other books that God has always been about uh, using the people of God in the Old Testament, the people of Israel to draw to himself people from every tribe yeah. and tongue and nation. And Absolutely. it's so beautifully presented here in Isaiah, <clears throat> yeah. isn't it? In fact, there's a little section in Deuteronomy. Uh, I can't remember the exact verse chapters right now, but there's a little section there which even talks about the Gentiles uh, believing in God and becoming an incentive for God's people to come back to him, which is exactly the kind of language that Paul picks up on when he talks about the Gentiles coming to faith in Christ and um, th them provoking jealousy, really, in, in the Jews so that the Jews then want to come to Christ. Um, even that is foreseen by Moses in Deuteronomy. So it, it wasn't off the wall. What Jesus was talking about was not anything new. I mean, Isaiah, as you said, is absolutely full of it. 
Egypt plays a key role here in Isaiah, really, as it does throughout the whole of the Bible. I mean, when we start reading about Egypt here, we can't help but think about slavery in Egypt. Um, but as we as we read about Egypt in Isaiah, what is the key thing we should take away and then teach to our people about what God has to say to his people about Egypt and what it represents? Remember that you know this, that Egypt actually functions at two levels in, in the Old Testament. Egypt was a place of safety, first of all, for the people of God. Um, safety from the Amorites, who were the Babylonian peoples of their day. They came from the region of Babylon and who came as uh, invading, invading Canaan and took over Canaan and so on. And God let them do that. They, they built their little kingdom there. And meanwhile, Israel's off to one side in, in Egypt in a place of safety. Slavery in the end prompted God to act, but he'd, always, he'd announced to Abraham he was going to act after 400 years anyway. So it just coincided with that. And, and, and God releases them from there and brings them back to Canaan to drive out the invaders, the Amorites. So Egypt is a place of safety as well as a place of temptation for, for God's people. The, the idolatry of Egypt was always a... In fact, they came with a lot of the idols back to Canaan. They brought them with them. Um, so Egypt functions, I think, in those two levels, which is why, for example, in the New Testament, Jesus who is the new Israel, really. We'll pick up that thought later. But Israel's taken down to Egypt for safety um, and then returns with his parents so that the prophecy could be fulfilled out of Egypt I have from my son. Um, so I think the in, the in the book of Isaiah, Egypt functions as... <coughs> I think primarily in Isaiah, it's the danger of going back to Egypt under the wrong circumstances. Using Egypt as an alternative to trusting God. Yeah, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about this big message in Isaiah about being to believe God, to yeah. trust him. And Egypt seems like the earthly alternative to trusting God. Yeah. I'll trust Egypt to take yeah. care of me. Well, I mean, really, in that first section... The, they're tempted to trust Babylon, uh, Assyria to get them out of the problems they're having with Syria and Israel to the north. Then later on, Hezekiah is tempted to trust Egypt instead of, you know, when, uh, when uh, Assyria starts to become the world power. It's Egypt they look to for help. In other words, they're always trying to trust somebody other than God alone. Yeah, that's true. So I think we'll separate our conversation into two parts. So let's bring this conversation about the first section of Isaiah to a close. Um, kind of skipping through a lot of chapters here. And yet, I would think these would be the hardest to keep your teaching sounding different. Yeah, uh, I think you probably have to. Between thirteen and, yeah. and thirty-nine, I would do right? it in big chunks. Okay, how would you how would you divide it? What what big chunks? Let's say you were going to do it over three or four. 
How would you divide it? Is that too hard? Three or four altogether. Yeah. To yeah. do 30. How many would you do it in? Yeah, I would really have to have your skill to be able to do that. <laughs> oh, come Seriously. On. <laughs> I would do the first, the first five chapters. Together. First five, together. yes. Yeah. Then six by itself, certainly. Probably. Okay. Probably. And then what? And then, and then I think it, it kind of falls. I think you could probably do most of it up to chapter, let me think, 30, maybe the last three chapters before 40. So You would um, do seven to? Yeah, 30, up to 34 maybe. Really? Okay. In what? Yeah. Because it has, yeah, and what would that be the central message of that teaching? Oh, d- Absolute depression. <laughs> Stick your head in a gas oven. It's all going to fall apart. Everything. Judgment is coming on Israel, on the nations. It's repetitive because their sins are repeated. Uh, there is absolutely no hope in in Zion. I think I think there are developing ideas there. Zion is beginning to emerge as the buzzword, not for Jerusalem, but for the heavenly Jerusalem. Zion is beginning to emerge as that distinctive entity representing the redeemed, ransomed people of God. Um, Babylon is emerging as being, along with Tyre and Assyria and so on, the, the kind of feature representative of the opposition to the people of God. And, uh, and there are undercurrents, nonetheless, of total judgment on on Judah and Jerusalem and yet and it all ends really verse chapter 35 with a with a promise of a future my heading in the ESV says the ransomed shall return yeah so there's a real message of hope there's election there there's uh, redemption there there's there's real hope there shall come to Zion with singing and everlasting joy yeah. shall be upon their heads yep Beautiful. All right, so then you would do yeah, 36 could, through yeah, 9, 36 39 to 39 together? is just because it's a bit of a historical kind and of And what piece. is the main thing you want to communicate? There's a lot in there about prayer being the chief means by which we recognize true faith. Um, so Isaiah, Isaiah helps Hezekiah, the king, to learn how to pray. Um, Hezekiah, who, you know, some people think that, that the virgin child, you know, is Hezekiah. He's the, he is the, the great figure, you know, and he, he did a lot of good stuff. But he ends up doing what his father did. He, only he goes to Egypt for help kind of thing. And he certainly doesn't have a kingdom that will uh, never no, end. No. And, you know, he, he lets Babylon come. When Babylon's nothing, they're just a small little power but he thinks a little connection with this little power it's growing over here might help just to balance the power against Assyria and he remember he invites the ambassador to come into the temple shows him all he's got let's close this section on chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah this way can you tell us in chapters 1 through 39 what are some key ways that we can make sure in our teaching we are giving out the gospel as we teach out Isaiah 1 through 39. And, I I mean, we could probably talk all day on that. Mm. I recognize that. Are there a handful of key, rich ways that we can do that? 
I think the most obvious one is that uh, in spite of all our efforts to save ourselves, we cannot save ourselves. I mean, I would say one of the huge themes of that chapter is Isaiah saying to these people, in a thousand different ways, you know, you can try this and you can try that, and you cannot save yourself. Salvation is of the Lord. God has to intervene. God has to, and you have to trust God to intervene. So God alone is the Savior. You have to trust God if you are going to be saved. Those themes emerge again and again and again. And... uh, and that the only hope for the future is for an intervention of God in the far future, in, in which was ultimately in Christ. This Emmanuel, Emmanuel, this seed from a stump, a branch out of dry ground. And we, and we have to be building on those things because by the end of the book, by the end of that section, the, the figure of the king, of this one who comes from the line of David. I think it's three times in the last few chapters, these last historical chapters, he is called my servant, David. And that's very crucial because that is Isaiah laying the foundation for his big work. Okay, And it really lays a foundation for the chapters to come here. Yeah. As he's going to tell us over and over again, behold my servant. Yeah. So there's that, that's, that's his theological position. He's getting us ready for that theological statement. There is, there is a practical thing that's happening in all of those chapters which are intimately uh, set in the life of Isaiah himself. This is chapters 1 to 39 really encompass his working life. After Hezekiah dies... Manasseh will come to the throne. Isaiah will be put to death, sawn in two, whatever they did to him. Uh, This is his working life. In his working life, in his preaching ministry, you will see him taking great care to make predictions that will happen maybe two years hence. So, for example, round about chapter 7, he makes predictions about what will happen in the next two or three years in, from the birth of his baby, his own baby. He goes and has it notarized, written down, notarized, put in a public office, record office, so that everybody knows, I said that in three years this is what's going to happen. He does the same with, I think, two other prophecies, one of which is the end of Israel and, and Syria. The other is the utter defeat of the Assyrians themselves the fact that they will never they'll get they'll get into Judah they'll go up to the city walls of Jerusalem and without any fighting taking place God will defeat them and they'll leave and he has that written down and notarized now what what is he doing what he's doing is he is showing his credentials as a prophet of God who is always 100% right in what he predicts it is on the basis of that what happens in those 39 chapters that his credibility is forever accepted within Israel. And that's why we, we have Isaiah's book. But it's also there so that we today can read it and think, wow, he'd really got that right, you know. 
Because we want to listen to the things that didn't happen in his lifetime, or weren't fulfilled. That virgin having a child, that didn't happen. Uh, this divine human king, that didn't happen. You know, the Israel becoming the basis for the salvation of Gentiles, that didn't, didn't happen in his lifetime. We are in a very good position that we actually know it did happen eventually. 800 years later, it happened. We know that the prediction that Babylon would destroy the city, that happened beyond his lifetime. Isaiah is taken seriously by the Jews because he was a prophet who spoke from God. Now, with that in mind, then, we listen to what he has to say from chapter 40 onwards. Well, I look forward to talking to you about that, the richness of Isaiah 40 through 65 in our next episode. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian books and tracts, including the commentary Isaiah, God Saves Sinners by Raymond C. Ortland Jr., and a new 12-week study in the Knowing the Bible series written by Drew Hunter, a great resource if you want to lead a study of Isaiah and have questions from the text already prepared for you to lead a group through Isaiah over 12 weeks. You can learn more about Crossway's gospel-centered resources at crossway.org.